thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the ConnectoCon on what men need most. This conversation is part of Connected People Channel in Connectal. It's curated by Ayelet Barron and Tim McDonald, and it explores topics on leadership, discovery, and well-being. You can join us live on the first Tuesday of every month. My name is Mark Gway, and I'll be your host for today. If this is your first ConnectoCon, ConnectoCons are a part of the Connectal ecosystem where we co-create work. It is a safe place for conversations, connections, and community. We host regular conversations in our connected channels, and you can find out more about the network at connectal.com. So our conversation today is on what men need most. Today we're going to talk about something that you don't read about in the newspapers. It's not what you'll overhear in a coffee shop, and it's definitely not something most men will open up about on social media. The discussion today focuses on men and what men need most to live out their greatest life and live a life on purpose. The thing is, it's really complicated to be a man today, and men aren't always the best at asking for help. To highlight this, out of the 2017 statistics from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, nearly 70% of the suicides in the US alone were men. Yet men all over the world seek a life full of more meaning. They want a deeper purpose and to be the best father, parent, partner, leader, and coworker that they can be. So the men that we've gathered today here represent a growing community of men all over the world who are coming together in a new form of personal development called men's work. We've gathered a group of four men who each have a unique perspective on what men need most as we co-create the modern world. We'll share stories, tips, and resources that have helped men deepen their purpose and grow into a modern man. James Cruzen is a former professional dancer who owns a leadership training academy that teaches body language skills to sales leaders. Tim McDonald is the former director of community from the Huffington Post and is writing a book called The Fear Advantage that helps people reframe the way they look at fear. Robert Kendall is a business consultant and the author of Unhidden, a book for men and those confused by them. I love that title. I am a coach and I'm writing a book called A Man's Work, a simple guide for men to integrate emotional energy and step into greater purpose, power, and connection. So the first question that I'd like to get started, gentlemen, is if you can go back in time, what is one piece of advice that you'd give to your teenage self about being a great man? My, I mean, I can answer this question. It's, it's the foundation of my work. And the foundation is that the most important thing to build is self-esteem, self-love, self-reliance. Uh, society teaches you the opposite. Men are taught to look external for validation, specifically with women, but also with power, prestige, money. And it, I've spent so much time and energy chasing, 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 chasing others, uh, especially women, to make sure that I knew I was a good man. And so the work I've done really in the last 10 years on myself has been to learn to love and self-validate. And so that would be the first thing I would teach my teenage self. That's beautiful. Thank you, Robert. Tim, what about you? You know, it's interesting because it made me stop and think and I was listening to Robert and it kind of brought me back to 
I think my middle school graduation when I was, you know, sitting there as my parents were throwing a party for me, um, celebrating my graduating, moving on to high school, that I was just sitting there crying because I was thinking more school. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to go to more school. And then I'm probably going to go to more school. Mm-hmm. And I hated school. And I just hated life at that moment in time. And I remember that I chose to change so that I wouldn't be hating it, that I would turn it into something that I loved. But what I didn't realize until much later in my life was that everything I was doing at that moment was still reframing it in the way that other people saw me instead of how I wanted to see myself. And so if I went back in time, I think that's the advice I would give myself is to just be who I was and not try and be who I thought other people wanted me to become. That's beautiful, Tim. Thanks for sharing, brother. James, what about you, good man? It's a doozy of a question. Um, It is, you know, it's funny when I came up with it, I thought it was simple and then I realized it's actually a pretty tough question. It's like, what will you pass down? Like, what is the nugget that you would choose to pass down? Um, For me, what, what resonates the most, what I feel in my body is you are enough just as you are. Like you're perfect just the way you are. And there's more in you that hasn't come out. And I think being able, like, like I believe there's more in you yet to come. And just that balance of like self-love and acceptance, uh, Robert, which you were speaking to, which I think is such a fundamental piece of like, you don't have to do anything more than what you've done or be anything more than who you are to deserve all the love in the world. And you get that. And there is a great man inside of you waiting to come out. And I see that. And that's going to be a process and an ongoing process and you'll never get there. And that's what it means to be a man. So that balancing of acceptance and pushing. Mm, that's beautiful. Thanks, James. So when I asked this question uh, and I thought about it for myself, I, I didn't, it took me a while to really come up with it. And I think the one piece of advice, I think about this often too, because I'm very interested in rites of passage. And I noticed that in American culture in particular, uh, we don't have very clear delineated rites of passage that uh, tell boys like, hey, this is what it is to be a man and we're going to come together. And this is the moment where you go from boyhood to manhood. Uh, Cultures in the past, and there are some smaller cultures within the United States that do this, but uh, other cultures were were really good at, at marking that delineation, that step. And men don't have a biological thing that naturally happens that, uh, the community comes together to to support their transition. So uh, for me, though, I think what it would be is um, to lead with fierce love. And uh, I think that uh, when you think from the heart, when you act from the heart and you stand up for what your heart believes is, is right, that that's uh, just as much of a muscle and that's a, a fierce type of leadership. So that's what I would share. So the next thing, now each of you has a unique worldview that brings you here today to talk about uh, what men need most. So given your own worldview, uh, what do you see and think that men need most to live out their greatest life? I guess I'll I'll go first. Well, the first thing I think men need now is very different than 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. The work I've seen is really this dynamic change, this evolution that's been happening 
very exponentially in the last 10 or 15, but the last 50 years. Uh, my research has shown the concept around the patriarchy has been around for 6,000 years, depending on which historian you look for. And so if you look at you know, 6,000 years of men being one step up, one degree higher than women, just society putting them there, uh, men accepting it, women accepting it, just being in this position. And here we are 6,000 years later with a lot of things happening in the last 50. If you look at the schooling system, if you look at economics, if you look at life expectancy, if you look at things like depression or like you said, male suicide, there's been this really epic change in the last 50 years. And a lot of men I'm talking to and coaching there's a, I don't know what to do. I don't know who to be. You throw into the Me Too movement and all of a sudden I'm scared to even be a man. I don't know how to act with women. And so the main thing I think for men to be in their purpose is to stop, look around, pull down your blinders, see what's actually happening in the world today and pay attention because the rules that were handed down to us by our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers are no longer working. I would love to jump in on that. I completely agree and know from my own journey, one of the most fundamental things that really, I think started the self-developmental healing process of like, what does it mean to be a, a man, a true man in my purpose, living like my own values was getting a community of other men who were asking the same questions and willing to be fully, fully authentic, fully transparent, and like speak their truth into a space where it didn't have to be solved, but at least it could be spoken. Um, so that might like for, for me, that was emotional vulnerability. That was being able to say, this is how I feel. This is my frustration. This is my truth, like all of that. And just to have that seen by other men, I remember getting on calls early in the process and listening to other men go through their process. And I may not have even gone through a process myself or shared anything, but just to be in a space where that was happening, I would walk away from those calls with more energy, with more insight, feeling better. Even if I personally didn't say a lot or go through much, it was like, oh, I'm seen, I have this, I can use this. So I would say community uh, is a huge factor. Out of uh, Robert, James, and, and Tim, uh, both, uh, so James has brought up the idea of community. Have, did, have each of you, did you have a community growing up? Like was the idea of men coming together, talking about how to be great men, was that even a concept in either, you know, seeing your father or your grandfather or your community? Did you even know that that was a thing that was happening? No, short answer, no. <laughs> I mean, it was very much, I think when Robert was talking about like how we've, you know, it's been this way for 6,000 years and we've just seen the change in the last, you know, 10 or, or however, mm -hmm. 15 years. I mean, that's the world I lived up, I grew up in. And I don't think my dad or my grandfathers, you know, I don't think they came across as being one level above like what my parents were, but I can look at his actions and see how he was acting in that way. And it just was like, I never felt like there was an open conversation about that. It was always something that was hidden, that wasn't talked about, that we just as child, you know, were exposed to and, and never brought into, but just exposed to, to look at from the outside and draw our own conclusions from it. And I mean, I think it's only, I was just thinking, you know, as we started this, I mean, this is the first time I've actually had a conversation about this with other men. 
I have one-on-one -on -one conversations, but most of my community is mostly female. And I'm much more freer in opening up with females than I am with opening up with other men. And I think that's probably because I feel that most of us are, have been brought up as men to view being strong, being a male as not showing weakness. And that's where I think I found the true beauty in who I was as a person by embracing my weakness as my strength. But that didn't come from having a community around me. It just came from doing that and then finding the community that rallied around that. Now, Tim, you come from, from my perspective, you come from a, uh, a, the corporate world, meaning that you worked in the, you know, almost the epitome of what the corporate world is, especially in, in New York City. Uh, from your perspective, is, what, what would you have to add to the conversation in terms of what do you think men around there need, need to know to be great men in that space? Well, I, th I think, you know, I mean, I look at it, I've been pretty fortunate where at two of the companies I worked at, um, I had a female president and then obviously at HuffPost, we had Ariana as a, as a female CEO. And it was, I don't, I just think it changed the dynamic so much in how I was in the workplace, but I've seen it even more so when I was at HuffPost, just how diverse and open people were in their diversity and willing to share that, that really helped me feel more comfortable as showing up as who I was as a man. And I mean, it really taught me something when, you know, I've, I've, I grew up, I had, you know, friends who were gay. I've worked with people that were gay, but it was never something that was talked in the workplace. And to have open conversations about that and the workplace was almost mind boggling to me, but yet so refreshing that we could have these conversations. And I don't think too many workplaces are like that. I know even like the place that I'm working at now, um, we're a very small office. It would be, probably be fine in that office, but we go outside and we talk with our members and go into their workplaces. And I'm sure that topic is just like it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. It is not gonna be accepted. And, and I think that, you know, the opportunity to understand that we can't change others, but we can only change ourselves is probably the greatest gift that I've learned, I think, through these experiences. I remember the, the first time a teacher taught, said, you're a chauvinist. And I was like, what? No, I'm not a chauvinist. I, I love women. I respect women. I don't know. I don't know what you're referring to, sir. And he was like, no, you are a born and bred chauvinist. And moreover, you're, you're a misogynist. You, you have a lot of anger towards women. And I was like, you know, obviously don't see me. You're an idiot. Um, and I was fortunate to sit with him, to continue to sit with him, because I was intrigued with who he was as a man. He was 30, 40 years older, a great teacher of mine. And what he showed me was the first time of my blind spot, my shadow, the parts I could not see. And that led to this incredible life I've had for the last 20 years from that spot because a man was willing to tell me the truth. I'm not saying my friends and you know, colleagues had never told me the truth. I'm just saying that level of intensity was brand new for me and the greatest gift. And so I think in society, unless we assign someone as, quote, a teacher, we don't give permission for other men and other people to really reflect 
the things that are a little more socially challenging to say. And I'm so grateful that I found him as a teacher, but then he was willing to just slap me upside the head with something I could not see. Can you go a little bit deeper into the story? What, what, was, what was going on there that caused him to say that? If you feel comfortable with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, none of my, I mean, I wrote a book called Hidden. So all my stories are open for fodder. Uh, I had actually paid uh, $20,000 for a six-month course around sexuality. Uh, this was 1999, uh, 20 years ago. And he was an old school, you know, hard-nosed Vietnam vet, you know, had five girlfriends. I mean, the whole thing. He was just this incredible powerhouse of a guy. And so, you know, I paid this money and I thought I'd be walk in and have a cakewalk and like, I thought it'd be easy. I had no idea that he was going to, you know, energetically open up my chest, pull out my soul, pull out my heart, pull out my black lungs, pull out my psyche and just be like, look, this is who you are that you can't see. And this is the limitations you have on yourself first and foremost, but this is what's impacting in you seeing other women and blah, blah, blah. And it was, it was this exquisite very painful start to a three-month journey of this self-discovery. But I tell you, if I did not take that road, I would end up, you know, just where I was going, which was probably overweight, divorced a couple of times, a bunch of kids, disconnected from myself, disconnected from my power. So I'm really grateful for that moment. So Robert, you bring up the idea that there's a shift, a cultural shift, meaning that our fathers and grandfathers, uh, were quite different and, and that now the way in which we identify as, as a man, as a great man, as a leader in the world, as a man is, is shifting. Uh, and you brought up the concept of shadow. So I wanted, uh, the, let me step back and say that. So the one thing that I always believe and in, in, in my work, uh, it's all about self-discovery, right? What can you learn about yourself to truly understand how you can operate in the world? And the more you learn about yourself, um, the more you're able to be fully present for others. And you brought up the concept of shadow, which is usually an eye-opener for a lot of people. And I want to make sure that we define that for our audience who might not know what that means. So uh, if we step back and just define that really quick, how would you put that into words? Shadow has long standing in the therapy arena. My definition is very simple. It's like if you think about your peripheral vision, you know, this is what you can see of yourself, this 180 degree view. The shadow is part that you can't see that's actually running the show. And so to me, it's the part that you don't have the vision. Either you have no ability to see it, you can't see your ancestral trauma, you can't see your unconscious behaviors, the childhood wounds that happened to you when you were two, three, four years old that are deeply uh, entwined in your self-conscious, uh, subconscious, excuse me, that you cannot access, but it's actually running the show. I mean, there's a, there's a Maggio uh, relationship therapy. Imagio was a Harville Hendricks. And the concept is, is that we look in our current romantic partners to heal our childhood wounds. What we didn't get as kids, we attract as partners. And so that's like, whoa, you know, what is happening there? It's, it's part of the shadow, part of our knowledge that we just don't have access to. Brilliant. Thanks for sharing that, Robert. James, Tim, what are your thoughts? I'd love to add a layer from my own perspective when I think about shadow. Um, I think about shadow as attributes or characteristics or you could even say parts of myself um, that I don't consider to be me. 
And so then I project them out of myself and say, that's not me, that's other. So that could be, so say it, there was a comment here in our, uh, Thomas Magnum mentioned something about like men's group and uh, he said, my experience in groups of men, especially straight identifying men is typically uncomfortable, never really explored it. I'm just aware of it, whether workplace of a men's group or circle, I think because so often the language is male, female, and it brings something up in me. And so like just that polarity issue of like, well, am I male or female? Am I strong or weak? Well, I'm not weak. So weak is something that's outside of me. So anytime I experience weakness or feel it in my system, well, that's not mine. And so I need to like do something about it or some, you know, make change it. I see it as not myself. So for me, that's a part of shadow is all those attributes or pieces of myself that I haven't brought in and said, oh, I'm both strong and I'm also weak at times. I'm both this and I'm that, that ability to work the polarity and find that you're the full spectrum of the polarity, I find to be another piece of shadow work that's really helpful. James, let's go a little bit deeper into that because mm -hmm. your background as a professional dancer, I think is really unique, <laughs> not just to this conversation, but just in, in the world in general. And you bring up this, this idea of polarity, right? Right. And we could talk about that, gentlemen, if we wanted to, like what's masculine and feminine polarity if, if we want to go there. But uh, in terms of like the push-pull that it takes to really flow on, on the stage, uh, can you go a little bit deeper into that and then connect it to what you see in leadership, and particularly with men as leaders? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one, I was a partner dance teacher. So I was a professional partner dancer. I taught swing dancing. When you say professional dancer, I would think people think always ballet or something. And I definitely was not a ballet teacher or like stage or Broadway teacher or dancer. Um, and that brings in partner dance is a conversation. It's an unfolding conversation with roles involved. And it's been interesting over the last 20 some years or so of progressing through my various career stages to look back on and realize how much the roles we play in partner dance mirror the roles that we play in the workplace and in relationship, which is to say like there's kind of traditional models of partner dance or traditional models of relating that are the leader, whatever gender, the leader has the step in mind and tells the follow what to do. And then the follow does it. And that's the dynamic because like I speak, you listen. And so it's a one-way conversation more or less with one role dictating kind of how it's going to unfold. And in the partner dance world, as you develop and build skill, particularly I did a swing dance, which is improvisational. So it's kind of being made up on the fly, much like relationships or the workplace. As you get better to truly be physically aware and listen to the follow as they are receiving those signals, you start to be able to back off of telling them what to do and start listening to what they want to do. And so the conversation becomes a two way. I'm both talking or speaking, but I'm listening as much as I'm speaking. And that I find to be a really valuable, I even use like physical movement and body awareness and that whole modality to help people become aware of where in my mind do I see leadership as being having the answers, telling people what to do and making it happen because I feel like that's kind of the, the old 6,000 year old idea of what it is to be a man is you show up, you have the answer, you make it happen. Everybody says, good job. And then you go home <laughs> with all of the rewards for it. And it feels like we're evolving past that. Like this idea that you can just push people around and not be listening to how that lands for them in their interior world. 
And I feel like my sense is that we took the private and public and we said, okay, the public space is the place for all the masculine values of like truth. And that's where we go do things. And then the feminine space, the home is the space for uh, goodness and beauty. Like we value that in the home space, we value that for family, but the two shall never cross. And the two shall not, they have crossed. And now I feel like in a lot of ways, us men are playing catch up going, oh my goodness, what is this like emotional intelligence and how can I be attuned to others and how can I actually be powerful and direct outcomes but not trample people in the meantime and not be listening to how that lands for them. And so for me, it's that feedback loop of emotional intelligence with power. I can still be highly powerful. I can be directive. I can make things happen, but from a place of connection and attunement and listening to make sure that those directions are landing and that those directions are consensual and that those directions are not overpowering. And so that for me is kind of the whole conversational polarity and role that that's the lens I look at the whole thing through. And, and James, I just, as I was listening to you describe this, I, I couldn't help but think of one element that I don't think you really touched on, which I'd love to hear about is you were talking about the difference between, you know, the, the two parties, but how do those two parties interact when the environment changes around them? Super good question. Um, can you clarify a little more? Cause it feels like there's a particular kind of correlative in the real world. And well, I just want to make sure we go towards that. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking like, I, I mean, not that I've, I've danced and I'm, I, probably, <laughs> you, you don't probably have to dancing if I got up there. But um, what I'm thinking is I've seen, right, like there's a whole group of pairs of dancers out on the dance floor. And so the, the coordination is not only between the two partners, but also all the other partners out on the dance floor. At a certain point in time, everybody else is off to the side of the dance floor and you're out there on your own and you have free reign. Got it. Um, if I understand correctly, you're asking how does it play out in the larger context like the community or the group is that kind of what you're getting to yeah or, or how does the the group or the community that you're in play into you know your awareness of how your relationship is with your partner mm. really important for me i i see it as a couple things i see there's an intelligence inside of organizations and inside of cultures and I think there's cultural value norms and so forth that get sort of carried in those groups and that that feeds into what the norms are. Um, so it may be a one-to-one -one conversation. You may have a really good relationship with this particular person and the dynamic may be good, but the value set may not be the same as what the organization is or the neighborhood or the, you know, the nation as a whole. So um, I think that those things influence. I think that's why this conversation is being had is because there's shifts in those alignments. And it's like, hey, like you mentioned, I can do relationship one-to-one -one with women quite easily. Like I know how to be emotionally vulnerable and I can create connection and, and it feels easy. And then I look to do it man-to-man -man and there's posturing and defense and like there isn't full presence and there's a whole power dynamic that's at play and it's harder. So I think that it's, that's what this conversation is, is kind of pulling that away and saying, hey, what are the underlying norms that are being played out? What are the underlying values and how do we shift those? I, you know, when I think about the, what, the title of the topic, what men need most to 
pull into that is men need to know it's okay not to know what they need and what to do and how to do it. I think there's this very strong bias taught to men that you're supposed to know what to do, how to do it. Like we, how we tend to sex, we tend to sex like we're Navy SEALs. We dive into the dark, you know, do the deed in the dark, no conversation and get out as soon as possible. Like there's no room for asking, well, how would you like to be touched? And how would you like me to do X, Y, and Z? And don't get too gratuitous. But the point is just for men to, to know that they can ask for help and ask for feedback and for women to know that they don't have to, but they have the opportunity if they're with a man who wants feedback to give it to them so they can learn and to evolve. You know, I think we have a society with a lot of dumb guys and a lot of angry women. And I think angry women just yell at guys and guys get more and less, more and more uneducated and more and more distant. And so it just takes one of us to say, I want to learn. I want to hear. I want to know. I want to understand you. And for women to say, these are the things I like and these are the things I don't like. And in that marriage, in that connection, that's where everyone can get more and more gratified. Robert, can we dive into your background with co-founding Ohm Meditation? Sure. So I'm not exactly sure what my question is with it. So I'm going to just try to come up with it and, and let's see where this goes. But I would love to hear your thoughts on what you learned from observing men in those situations. I think you're going to have to describe what an Ohm Meditation is to, to the audience. And sure. Good luck with that. I'm not sure how <laughs> you summarize that really quick. But... Uh, I would love to know what you learned from, from observing men, uh, particularly because James, you had talked about uh, this push and pull and this listening and observing and holding space and engaging in the dialogue. Uh, Tim, you had mentioned that as well, right? And that's how we co-create leadership. And uh, Tim, I know a lot in our conversations as well of what it means to be a leader, particularly for business is it is a co-creative process. Um, so, when it comes to uh, particularly sex, uh, you know, I would love to know, Robert, your thoughts on or, or what you observed with men in terms of where it's not about men either feeling an orgasm or men uh, doing anything other than really observing the presence of the woman as she enjoys the, the energy. I was talking with a friend yesterday who was telling me about a new boyfriend or someone she's dating. And she said, you know, we, we started to have sex and then X, Y, and Z happened. And then he didn't climax. And then he went to bed mad. And then he was yep. in the mood in the morning. And then he distanced himself because he felt it was my job as a partner, as a woman, to bring him to climax. And my friend just didn't feel like it, just wasn't what she wanted to do. And just this viewpoint, this commerce-based sex that we're, I was raised in and most men are raised in. You do this and I do that. You know, uh, I provide the money, you, you provide the home. I do this and then you provide the sex, you provide this energy. So when I started One Taste in 2004, I was 34 years old and I call myself numb and dumb. Uh, basically, I was a very smart guy. I was a linear guy. I was a good computer programmer and I liked women. I just had no ability to see outside my little scope. And then I learned the practice of orgasmic meditation, which was a third or fourth iteration of a practice that's been going back since the 1960s. We took a practice 
um, started by a guy named uh, Victor Bronco in the 1960s in a group called Moore, and just really updated it to the 21st century. Uh, and at a core level, it's taking the most dexterous part of one person's body, the index finger, I'll just call this the man as a stroker, stroking the most sensitive part of a woman's body, which is the upper left-hand quadrant of her clitoris, up, down, up, down for 15 minutes without a goal, without an outcome, just with the desire to feel as much as possible. So you can just imagine being in this position, stroking this very sensitive spot, not trying to bring her to climax. The man is fully clothed. And I saw the wide spectrum of experiences from men. You know, the geeks and the nerds, which I consider myself one of, we're thrilled. We're like, oh my God, I get to experiment and play and learn. And there's conversation, there's feedback. And like, we're like, you know, interested and, and focused. The other end of the spectrum, let's call him the guy's guy. was like, what's in it for me? When do I get off? And the wide spectrum that existed in between, you know, those two ends. And here's the outcome I saw with almost every single guy, regardless of what they, how they started. If they were willing to try the practice for a set period of time, they learn to put their attention off of themselves. Am I doing this right? Am I a good man? Do I look good? Take the attention off of the man and put it on his finger and his finger in connection to the woman and the sensation that existed between us. And in that practice of taking the attention off, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? There was so much more possibility to learn and feel. And once I was able to take my attention off myself, I was able to go on a woman's ride in the orgasmic ride, the feminine orgasm, which is very different than the masculine orgasm. So to make a very long story short, it taught men how to feel. And then that practice enabled me to feel in conversation. And that practice, even when my, my partner wasn't even in the room, I could still kind of hear the sense of her. And I had this like really weird ESP. And all of a sudden I could like know things that I'd never knew before, just be taking my attention off of myself and learn to put it on another. Thanks Robert for going into that. Sure. Tim, in your book that you're writing, The Fear Advantage, can you speak a little bit about bring fear into why this might be uncomfortable for men to talk about? Well, I can honestly say out of the 50 plus people that I've spoken to so far, um, I've had three people tell me that they didn't think they had any fear. Two were men. And the woman who I had a conversation with, by the time we were done talking, she realized that she did have fear. And the two men didn't acknowledge that they had fear or maybe could experience fear once in their life, which I still think is either amazing or bullshit, one of the two. Um, so I think what I found is, and I, 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 it was interesting because I started out thinking, I wanna talk to people in that lead major corporations. I wanna to talk to politicians um, to get their idea because typically we don't see those people talking about fear. If anything, we see them not showing any fear, which is people that we look up to 
And as men, if we look up to those people that aren't showing fear, then how are we supposed to be? We're not supposed to show fear. And so I put a call out and I tried to, to, to do this and I haven't had any success in getting any of those people to talk to me. I think I can probably get some that are retired that would be honest. And I mean, if they are willing to talk to me, they're not willing to talk to me on my terms. They want to do it on their terms. And that's not going to be an open and, and honest and authentic conversation. And I don't want that. So I'm sure I could find the retired people that are probably willing to talk about this. And I can probably find some people that I know as personal friends that are in smaller companies or smaller political roles that are willing to have a conversation with me. But it's very fascinating to me how when we start talking about it at, in these power positions that nobody wants to call it fear. They'll call it anxiety. They'll call it, I even, I, I read a post today on, on LinkedIn and, and it was talking about a conversation about um, anxiety and guilt. And I said, why are we not talking about fear? And he didn't know, the author didn't know. He was saying, well, they didn't bring it up. He was quoting Conan and, uh, and somebody else on their podcast. But I, I was like, well, just because they didn't bring it up doesn't mean that we can't talk about it, right? Like we can't talk about this fear because we have to be men and we have to be strong and we can't show a vulnerability. We can't show a weakness if we want to be in these power positions. And I think what I'm learning is that, you know, that's the, the old story, right? And that's still what exists so much in this world today. But what I'm also finding is just how many people are truly open to sharing these stories of, of fear. And, you know, it's been fascinating for me because I've talked to so many people, some that I just met and some that I've known for years. The ones that I've known for years, I've learned something about them that I never even had an idea about. It brought us so close that I just felt like there was, there was this connection that on a deeper level that we never had before. When it was somebody that I had just connected with for the first time, I felt like I had known them for years with the stories they were telling me. And I just looked at the, every, every moment after I got off one of those calls, I would go downstairs and I'd tell my wife about it. And I'm like, there is something going on here that is so powerful because of the feeling that I'm getting from this. Imagine if we were able to do this in real life all the time. Imagine if we were able to have these open conversations with anybody. And, and, and let people know who we are as a human. And to me, that's what it's about, right? It's not about being a man or a woman. It's about being human. It's about showing that you have a heart, that you have emotions, that you care, not only about yourself, but about the people around you. And, and to me, I think that's what, what this fear, you know, has really taught me is who's open to talking about it and how are we able to deal with it in a healthy way that allows us to let it propel us instead of holding us back? Tim, what you're talking about reminds me a lot of Brene Brown's work in terms of the power of vulnerability, right? And so my question to you three gentlemen is, uh, so is there power in vulnerability for men? And why, Tim, you had mentioned that a lot of people aren't comfortable in it, even though it's it, it, you and I think, and I know I view it as a strength for sure, but uh, 
is it even is it possible for men to to fully be vulnerable and 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 is it even a safe space for them to do it i would love to explore that topic if you guys are up for it absolutely um i feel like I, vulnerability is a huge piece and just like listening to robert speak and tim speak robert to speak to the like getting out of performance anxiety <laughs> out of the, the, the me frame. It's, it's all about me. It's all about my performance. Also, everything is about how am I being like that as the default lens that men are kind of handed as that this is how you succeed in the world. You, you do all the things and you get perceived the right way. And it is all about what you do. Um, and then Tim speaking about like the, the beauty of fear, the beauty of having an authentic conversation with someone and having them say, I don't know, I'm afraid. Um, I feel like fear opens up your internal, like, this is who I am. These are my emotions, like anxiety or failure. Like that just means I care about the business. I can fail my way forward. That's, that's the strategy for last quarter. That's great. But fear is, this is who I really think I am. And this is how I think I could fail. And this is about me. And this is really showing you my softest innards. And I think that I think that that's a huge step to take immediately in a corporate space. If you haven't done personal development, if you don't have a social culture that supports that, if it is slightly hostile or kind of barren <laughs> as far as the space for that, then just trying to jump in and expect the world to go there with you. If you haven't put in the reps, I think is asking a lot of the world, um, which is why I would really encourage any and all men, women, who cares, everyone to find spaces and communities to have those conversations, even if it's just with your most intimate partner and say, I don't know, I'm really scared. I'm really afraid that X, Y, or Z will happen. I'm afraid you're gonna leave me. And then have the real conversation after that truth is on the table. Like those huge little steps, I think are what build the muscle where at some point you are on the corporate board or in the boardroom meeting, and you are able to pull back and say like, in this moment, I'm really scared or I'm really afraid that X, Y, Z, that this is going to be the perception of me. And now here's my truth. Let's go ahead and deal with what's real and have those daring conversations. Um, so I, I would just say it's a practice uh, is my experience of it and that it pays huge dividends and that finding a community and other people who will help you build those skills up is vital. It doesn't happen in a silo. And I know as a man, that was how I went about it at first was like, great, I'm gonna go read 40 books all alone in my study. And I'm gonna master this vulnerability thing all alone by myself and then come out into the world as a master of doing this emotional intelligence and vulnerability thing. And that's gonna be awesome. And it was just a load of crock. I mean, it, it was slow failure after failure, conversation after conversation of doing it in the real world. That was what built the skill. You actually mentioned, uh, James, three things that I've kind of focused on is what makes a difference in using fear as an advantage. And, you know, the first is self-awareness, right? You need to be self-aware that this is happening. The second thing is you need to act. Nothing's going to change if you don't take some action. 
And I love what you said. It's not just push a button and it's done. It's these reps that you continually need to do. You need to try different things if those things aren't working. And the third thing is that you need to build a community around you. You need to have that support network to know that you're not alone in, in doing this. And so I, I, I love what you're, how you're describing it because it's in different words, but it's basically simply those three things to me. It's that you need to be aware, you need to act, and you need community. And it's as simple as that. Those are the people that excel with their fear and everybody else is being held back and not progressing to be their full, true selves if they're, if they're not taking those steps. I haven't seen it. I was, oh, go ahead, Robert. No, go ahead, James. I was just going to say, I, I think it's really interesting to pull back the whole fear concept and kind of fold it in on itself as the, like, it, that it seems to me, at least in my own experience, that that can be that paralyzer as a man is like, oh, no, something's at risk. Like I'm going to be perceived or if I fail, what does it mean? It means I'm unworthy. If I'm unworthy, I lose love. If I lose love, I lose connection. Now I'm on my own. I'm isolated. And there can be this like quick, easy building up of the walls of like, my only option is succeed without help or fail, succeed without help or fail. So I'm going to just keep beating my head against the wall of like, how can I do this alone? How can I do this alone and triumph? And then I'm worthy of the love and connection. Then I get community. Then I get to be part of all of the rest of it. And in my own work, both with relations, like with couples uh, over the years in dance and, and coaching therapy, like therapeutically, and then into leadership and sales, I feel like that core wound of, am I worthy? And do I need, like, do I have to pack? Can I pass the test to be worthy of love is such a fundamental to address, to open up the like self-healing journey. I was thinking in terms of like process flow on this conversation. So then I wrote down action or stimuli produces a result. There's an awareness either at the conscious or subconscious level. If it's at the conscious level, then there's a judgment. Then there's a self-assessment. And then in that self-assessment is where vulnerability really comes into play. When we have confidence in who we are, we're not afraid to show these parts of ourselves to our community, to our friends, to our intimate partners? How much do we hide? But if we do have an issue with vulnerability, we're going to be like, we need to protect and lie. And lie creates, even withholding, creates distance between you and another person. And so having that self-confidence, that foundation of love of being like, I messed up, you know, like in, in improv, uh, I don't know if you've ever taken any improv classes, but a big celebration is when you totally mess up. And you, you know, I won't say the word, I effed up. You like, you actually raise your hand. Everyone goes, woo, because you're, you're saying out loud, you're acknowledging that you had the courage to actually lean in deep enough to take a big enough risk to quote, make a mistake, unquote, which I like to call miscues. There are no mistakes or just miscues. And our ability to lean into life, to live life, that's where adventure happens. It doesn't happen in the safe comfort zone. It happens when you're willing to make a mistake. And so to me, vulnerability is what makes life exciting. It makes what life powerful. That's what makes life intimate. It's the moments where I go to my wife, Morgan, and be like, listen, I did this thing. I might have hurt your feelings. I totally messed up. Uh, I wasn't thinking, and I apologize. More often than not, she's just like, okay, like whatever. Like she doesn't care, but I'm holding the, the weight of my truth inside of me that I'm hiding and it's gaining 
mucus and bile and it's per, you know it's getting gooey and it's getting stinky our our ability to be vulnerable to be intimate with the people we call our intimate friends that's where life really happens so i'm a big brene brown fan because i do believe in the power of vulnerability i think it's what is the bridge from mediocrity to excellence you know you know what's what I, and I, I completely agree, but what I can't help but think is, and I'm not saying this is how all of us were brought up, but I'm knowing it's how I was, how most of the people I know were, especially in the States, is we are brought up in a society from our parents to our schools that do not reward failure. They only reward Excel. You know, grades are based upon how you do. You don't get advanced into the next grade if you don't have good enough, you know, marks on your, on your, on your classes. And then we get into this workplace and we have to excel even more. We have to get that promotion. We have to go do the next thing, right? Because nobody stopped and asked us along the way, what was important to us? What did we want out of the world? And I loved when I heard somebody talk about this, how their dad actually at the dinner table would ask them instead of, what, what did you accomplish today? He'd ask them, what did you fail at today? And I think when you start celebrating your failures, you start to become vulnerable. You learn that in a society that would typically doesn't encourage that and in an, an environment that doesn't encourage that. And, and I think if you're lucky enough to have parents that do that, or if you are a parent and are hearing this and can actually celebrate that with your own family, it'll help your kids further on because I know for me, this was a very, I mean, I'm over 50. It was a very painful process over the course of the last 10 years to actually feel okay with being vulnerable. I'm a completely different person, not completely different. I'm very different person today than I was 20 years ago. Very different. And it was not easy getting to where I am today, but I like myself a heck of a lot more where I am today than I was 20 years ago. Let me just jump in. Like, oh, go ahead. Yeah, to that point though, like the 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 grades and the job, everyone said that that was the doorway to success. And so, if we go back to the original question of you know what I would tell my teenage years is like, don't buy that story, don't buy it because many many I have a I'm coaching a VIP couple. They're loaded. They have a house in Costa Rica. They he has a beautiful wife, and the guy's kind of miserable. Like it's, it doesn't matter what the external circumstances are. It's what the internal is. That's the most important. And I think that's a Sarah Blakely quote. Uh, she started Sphinx, the little women's garment. So for the information of where that came from. But I, I mean, that's my point really is, you know, we can identify this today and we can help adults, but what are we doing to change? You know, that's a bandaid on the entire solution to me. What we need to do to change our culture is to start having these conversations with our youth and helping them understand that it's okay to be vulnerable, that it's okay to embrace being who you are as a person and not just live up to what our societal definition of success is going to be. Tim, you make me think back to my teaching years and how for 10 years when I taught in New York, I taught high school seniors and I was... 23 when I first started teaching and I had a 20 21 year old student and the rest of my students were 18 and I was on the phone there was one student in particular 
who wasn't doing well. He was, like I said, he was 21, still in school. And so one day after school, his father and I are on the phone and his father was a state trooper and pretty tough, like rough and tough kind of guy known for his macho attitude kind of. And I have a deeper voice. So he goes to me, Mr. Gway, I'm wondering if you could offer me a little bit of fatherly advice. What should I do with my son? And that was when I realized, oh, this guy thinks that I'm about his age when actually I'm two years older than his son. And it was beautiful because he was opening up, he needed some help and, and I offered him what I thought was great advice, but it also made me realize that uh, like we're all in this together, just trying to figure this shit out. Like, it, especially parenting, uh, especially being just a good person, um, it's, it's hard. It's hard to do, especially as society just continues to shift, especially if you're trying really hard to live a really deep, meaningful life. If you're doing the hard work, which what I consider a, you know, a man's work, one of the man's greatest work is discovering the self. I mean, Robert, you talked about shadow work earlier uh, and talking about it on a podcast like this makes it sound like it's easy, but God, no, that is terribly difficult, right? Uh, opening up, being vulnerable, failing forward. That's not easy. It's easy to talk about, but when you actually do it, it hurts. And if you don't have that community around you to build you back up, you know, uh, it, it could be debilitating and uh, quite possibly the cause of why I named that statistic at the beginning, uh, you know, with 70% of, of the suicides in the U.S. alone being men, there, there's, 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 there's a clear correlation to why that's the case. So we talked about a lot of different things here. I want to give the opportunity for these last few minutes. Uh, if there's anything else, gentlemen, that we didn't get a chance to, to talk about, uh, for you to open that up, or if there's any other questions that you have that uh, in this time here where we are being vulnerable, we are opening up as men uh, in our respective spaces. And, and Robert, you and I are the only ones who are like out there as men's coaches necessarily, I guess, as a term. Uh, Tim and James, you, you both are more in, from my perspective, in uh, you know, the corporate world or, or in, a, in a different field, but we're all here in this space. And it's one of those beautiful times that we're able to actually be real with each other. So I want to give that space to you three, if there's any other questions that you have for us here. I think just really a main comment to men listening, like I'll just see like my personal example. I've been doing personal work for 20 years. And like Mark said, this, a lot of those years have not been happy, fun, go lucky party. No, they're not. They're they're They've been dark and they've been gooey and ooey and just all those, the lowest lows of my life have been in these 20 years. And then just in the last seven months, I've done some really deep personal work on my value around my business, really, you know, continuing all these years. And I can tell you, even now, after 20 years, I've hit new levels of self-love and self-acceptance. And I just got my highest paying client for a year contract, you know, way beyond I thought was possible even a year ago. So my point is this, is that we can continue to grow. As soon as you climb one mountain, there's another one right behind it. 
if you want to make micro changes in your life, they're possible. If you want to make macro changes in your life, it's possible. You just have to get off your ass, stop watching Netflix, stop complaining, stop <laughs> playing the victim. Be willing to lean in to your shadow, your darkness, the parts you don't want to see. Ask for help. If you have the means, hire a coach or a great teacher. It's all possible. You know, if you're not happy with your job, your life, your romantic life, your body, your soul, your spirituality, we live in the most dynamic possible time for most men who can up level your lives. And so just really, it just takes one step in the right direction and just truly believe that it's possible for anyone. So gentlemen, I want to thank you all again so much for, for joining me here. Uh, it's been a great conversation. We talked about a lot of things. Um, whenever I gather a group of men and have a conversation, I never really know exactly where it's going to go, but it always goes someplace interesting and insightful. So I appreciate you three for showing up in your true vulnerability. Uh, I do encourage our listeners to reach out to three of these men, not just to talk about how to be a great man, uh, but also just to take a look at all the great work that they're doing. I do know these three men personally, uh, and they are just absolutely beautiful men that are just leaning into the world and doing great work in, uh, in everything that they do. So I respect them highly and encourage you to follow up with them. Thank you again for tuning in to uh, this episode here with Connectal. I invite you all to continue the conversation. Of course, you can reach out to me as well. Uh, my website is markwgway.me. So thank you again for tuning in, and I wish you all a beautiful, beautiful day. So with the last few minutes here, I want to give the opportunity for resources. A lot of men I know uh, that I work with one-on-one, -on -one, uh, they have the means to be able to do that. And I live in a city right now, San Diego, I'm from New York, both places where uh, thankfully there's a lot of communities. There's men's empowerment or just men's groups. Uh, and uh, I, I was in an area, a, a, a location where I was able to access that community, but not everyone that's listening, especially since this is global, that's not the case. So. Are there any resources that uh, you would like to share with the guests listening if they want to learn more about uh, how to grow into you know, being a better man? And feel free to share your own, of course. I know, uh, Robert, with your podcast, Tough Love, that's the, a beautiful place to go, particularly uh, the way you talk about your relationship. It's quite uh, just utterly beautiful. I really appreciate you for being so vulnerable and open with that. And I know, Tim and James, you have other places as well. Yeah, well, I can share one that one place that I just have found so much inspiration from, and it's not from a male, it's from a female, but um, sure, <laughs> it's sure. uh, uh, Sydney Williams uh, has a, a site called Hiking My Feelings, and her and her husband um, about a, last year sold their, or got out of their house, sold most of their stuff and moved into a van, and she's basically um, was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and now does not have any form of diabetes because she attributes it to not only changing what she ate, but getting in touch with herself and becoming more healthy out in nature and really being open with her feelings out there. And I think that what I've really found is just by the stories that she shares and how she shares them, it's allowed me to see a way to open my own self up in my own way 
um, that that really makes me feel like I'm not alone out there in, in how I want to express myself, how I want to be. And there's nothing just to join that Facebook group and, and be part of, uh, you know, allowing you in a safe space to share your story as well. So that would be my tip. And that's Sydney Williams hiking my feelings, right? Yes. And I think if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, she's actually currently doing a tour uh, at the different REIs throughout the United States, uh, sharing yeah, her beautiful she, story. So yeah. Yeah, I think she's up in New Hampshire right now in the Northeast, but yeah. they're all over the place. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's awesome. Thank you. Robert, James, any other resources to share? Specifically, I, the men's group I joined is Johnny Blackburn's here in San Diego. So that's a local resource, not one that most listeners may be able to take advantage of. I do know that the Mankind Project is, is nationwide. And although I haven't been a participant myself, I know many, many men who've been through the program and speak super highly of it as one of those communities you can go to have real conversation and whether it's start the process or continue the process of personal development and getting real. Um, so I would say that's a resource I would definitely endorse. Um, I will say personally that um, really understanding, for me, a lot of it has been understanding my own body, understanding my own zones of genius and how I show up in the world and learning to be okay with being me <laughs> and doing life the way I do life, uh, both in business and, and romance and like all across the boards. So um, one resource I can personally offer is I'm more than happy if folks are curious about understanding how their body's communicating and how they naturally do connection and direction um, to have folks go onto my website and book a call and spend a little bit of time with me just in support of them. Those are complimentary and I'm happy to, to spend some time with anyone who, who's curious about that whole process. And that can definitely be men because a lot of times in those assessments, we find out there's some zone of genius that you just don't like bringing to the table because everybody told you that you're not supposed to be that. And so I love helping folks discover that and go, oh, how can I integrate this and show up in my zone of genius at work and in my romance life? So uh, that would be unspokenleadership.com as my website and you can just book a call with me. All my resources can be found at robertcandell.com. That's K-A-N-D-E-L-L.com. I even have a subpage uh, that's uh, forward slash four dash men. It's off my resource pages and I have my favorite books, uh, my favorite podcasts, group, um, men's leaders like Javon Langford, John Wyland, Everyman, Warrior Sage, Brotherhood Community, uh, and more. It's a page in motion. So if you have a resource for men, please email me um, or you can check it out at robertcandell.com forward slash four dash men. And Tim, how could our listeners contact you as if, if they want a little bit more or continue this conversation? Um, you can call me at 312-970-0846. Or you can follow me on Twitter at T-A McDonald, M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D, T-A-M-C-D. Uh, Tim, this is why I love you. <laughs> <laughs>